Today's guest is Greg Zuckerman. Greg is the special writer at Wall Street Journal, and he's also the author of The Man Who Saw the Market, How Jim Simmons Launched a Quant Revolution, a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Hey, Greg, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be here. You know, I had a chance to read your book, The Man Who Solved the Market, about uh, Jim, Jim Simmons, and it's a fantastic book because I couldn't find any other book out there like that. Um, j- just to, so the audience understands of your background, how did you end up um, getting started with writing this book? So I've been at the Wall Street Journal since 1996, uh, quite a long time. And a lot of what I do is I write about investors, uh, buy side type people, mostly hedge funds, a little bit private equity and venture capital and mutual funds, but mostly kind of the bigger players out there. And um, if you do what I do for a living, um, you keep hearing about this mysterious secretive investor, Jim Simons and his firm, Renaissance Technologies. And everyone talks about them. No one can quite understand how they did it. So, you know, I like a challenge and uh, the returns are just crazy good. Uh, 66% a year since uh, they began, or at least since they turned the corner and they, they became a hedge fund in 1988. So I set out to figure out how they did it. And one of the things is your other book that you wrote, The Greatest Trade Ever. How does the research that you did compares to that book? Or how is it different? Well, this was harder because, as I suggested, they're, they're really known as the most secretive firm Wall Street's ever seen. So from the get-go, the firm told me they wouldn't work with me. Jim told me he wouldn't work with me. Um, they told others not to work with me, not to speak with me. So it was harder in that regard, but it was also harder because I'm not a math guy. And this is all about quantitative finance, algorithms, preset. Um, um, these models, very sophisticated models, AI, uh, machine learning. So I had to learn all that. So it was it was a challenge in that regard, but that's also sort of why I do <laughs> what, what I do. I enjoy these kind of challenges and I enjoy learning. So I set out to figure it all out. And you had mentioned a couple of times it was very secretive. So how did you get people to open up to you? And I know in, eventually in the book, you do mention that even Jim Jim Simmons also opened up to you. So yeah. how did that happen? Can you walk us through that? I, I did. It's a good question. Um, I think just persistence. Um, when it came to people who work for him or used to work for him, um, I think on the one hand, they realize they're not supposed to talk, but they also realize that they've accomplished something pretty spectacular, um, historic even. And I think they wanted to talk about that either on or off the record. So they to, to go through life, so secretive and, and not let people know how you pull this thing off. Um, maybe there was some frustration on their part or, or some of them are just older. I mean, if you're 70 or, or even older, I, I think you're more likely to share um, than when you're younger. And Jim himself, uh, yeah, for a long time wouldn't talk to me, but I think he just realized that wasn't going away. And, and, and also I think he realized that I was taking it seriously, that I, I didn't want to make any mistakes, that um, – I was, t- I was killing myself to, to get it right. So I think he, I'd like to think he appreciated that. And that was maybe one of the reasons why he eventually opened up. I don't want to suggest that he, you know, opened the kimono or anything, but he, he was quite helpful. And your book mentioned he, he was not willing to talk to you about the strategies per se, but 
probably about some of his early life. Is that is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Early life, um, recent uh, years as well. Um, you know, some other uh, issues, too. He, he, he proved quite helpful. So I, I have to uh, share my appreciation of that. So why don't we dive a little bit into your early part of your book where you talk about, you know, Jim's early life. What was that like in terms of growing up and and maybe even we'll go to that part where he was in he was in academia before he got into hedge funds? Yeah, so he grew up uh, with a love of, of not money, but math. He liked money, too, but he really wanted to go into mathematics he went to uh, MIT, did it in three years, went and got his PhD in Berkeley, came back and taught at both MIT and at Harvard. Um, but he always had sort of one foot in the world of academia and one foot in the real world, unlike some other academics. And he did always like money. He's this interesting individual because he's a world-class mathematician. I'll talk about it in a second. But he also really loves making money and wanted to get rich and people around him we're, we're, we're unsure why he wanted to get so wealthy. Some of it was maybe have an impact on the broader world. It wasn't clear, still not entirely clear to, to people. But um, he did, and he left to break code for the government. And that was a fascinating time where we're going up against the, the USSR, the Russians in the, in the Cold War, and we were kind of on a losing streak. And Jim and some others helped turn things around and broke code. And, and that was a, a, a period where he learned some skills, such as uh, building algorithms. And they proved really quite valuable uh, later in life. Um, and then he went into academia. He ran uh, uh, Stony Brook, SUNY Stony Brook's uh, mathematics department and did really well turning that thing around and learned other skills, such as how to hire people who don't really want to leave. You know, they're interesting Ivy League type professors that he targeted and convinced to leave uh, their their tenure position sometimes to go to Stony Brook wasn't as as prestigious as it is today. So again, he learned some other skills. He learned the skill of, of how to court and how to woo talent. And those proves really important later on. And then around 1978, he said, you know what, I'm going to try this trading thing and try to beat the market. So he set off to start a hedge fund to do that. And he started that by initially doing currency trading, correct? Is that around 1978? Right, exactly. So he had a sense that maybe there were some opportunities uh, in currencies. And he did it in a different way, just trading and investing in general. I mean, most people at the time were either kind of doing the Peter Lynch approach where you talk to companies and executives and you look at a product and you like the product and you test the product out and that kind of thing. My wife likes the pantyhose when it came to Peter Lynch. And so I'm going to go check out, check out a lot of, you know, com compare the, the products. So have she do it or I do it, et cetera. So he took a different approach. He, he also took a different approach to the, the view of the time of academics was that the market was efficient and you can't really beat the market. So he ignored all that and he kind of embraced a uh, version of technical trading, looking for patterns in the market and whether you could find some patterns that maybe um, are below the surface and, and people don't realize. And he set out to try to do that. And that company he uh, initially founded, was that called Monometrics? Yeah, exactly. That was early on before Renaissance. And they had some early success in building models. And he hired some mathematicians, some former colleagues. And again, he sort of found people that were super smart, but weren't really interested in trading or investing or making money like he was. And Jim convinced them to, to join his firm and, hey, come on over, spend a day of the week. Uh, you know, I know you don't like trading, but, you know, you might be challenged 
by what we're doing over here. And he built this thing. And for a while, they made money. Then they lost money. They went back and forth between different approaches, sometimes the model approach. And sometimes uh, they said, you know what, we're just going to wing it. We're just going to be like macro investors and look to figure out where gold and silver are trading and where the con global economies are going. And it just didn't work for him. Uh, it literally made him sick to his stomach. He kind of, the way he describes it is, I felt like a uh, hero uh, when I made money and a dope when I lost money. And it just didn't sit well with him. So then he eventually went back to building predictive models. And that's sort of uh, where the whole industry is going today. And in terms of predictive models, you know, recently I was reading um, a research article by these two professors. Um, it's called Returns to Buying Winners and Selling Losers, um, Implications for Stock Market Efficiencies by uh, Dr. Uh, Jagdish and Titman. And what they're talking about is sort of uh, this anomaly with regards to momentum investing. And I wondered whether his earlier trades or even current trading is this, is it more of trend following? Is it momentum or is it uh, what what are what are the assumptions uh, built into these um, algorithms? Well, they're complicated, and there are many of them. I think the better way to look at it is it's a version of stat arb, statistical arb trading. So, on a real simple level, let's say you you really simple, uh, you look at two stocks that should trade more or less alike uh, together. There's some relationship, let's say Coke and Pepsi or GM and Ford or something. Um, and then they get out of line. So you try to figure out what the reasons are that they might be aligned. Are they reasonable? There, is there a good explanation? But if not, then you step in and you, you buy or you sell. You, you bet that the relationships are going to revert. And that's kind of what they do on a much more, more, more sophisticated level all day long. I, I should clarify that. About 60% of their training is equities. So we're talking about the equity side of, of, of what they do. The other side, there is some element of trend following and other kind of patterns. But when it comes to equities, it's more like stat arb and all day long, they own about four or 5,000 stocks and they're long in uh, there. I'm sorry, they're short about 4,000, 5,000 stocks. So they bet on the relationship among equities. They don't really bet on where things are going. They can't tell you where Facebook's going to be in a year from now, but they can look at relationships. And that's kind of why um, I believe that they're so unique and they do so well because they don't, try to predict where the market is going. Got it. And I just want to go back to the er, his earlier start of the fund. Some of the, you know, managers that I talked to, you know, they had a hard time raising that initial capital. And I know in your book, you mentioned, you know, he wanted to raise $4 million. That's what we, he was shooting for, for his Monometrics fund. You know, I, from reading your book, it didn't, it seemed to me that he came from a wealthy family so how did he raise that initial capital to start that fund? Well, um, it, it, it's a good question. And it also speaks to sort of the challenge and, and, and frustration he had early on. So by around 1990, they had turned the corner in terms of embracing a short-term approach, sort of holding day, a holding period of, let's say, a couple days, um, which is more or less what they have today. They've changed it very a lot since then, substantially in, in a lot of different ways. But in terms of the holding period, the way they look at it is a seconds to seasons kind of thing. And at the time, people did not believe in the quantitative approach. There were a couple of people, D.E. Shaw or David Shaw was working on what he was doing. Um, Ed Thorpe had an earlier start, but he kind of flamed out. 
Um, so there were some other people doing it, but it was seen as kind of black box and why are you wasting your time and that kind of thing. Um, so as you suggest, he kind of had some, he had some wealthy friends. He went to MIT. Some of the friends he had, their parents were, um, entrepreneurs in Latin America. And that's where he got his original money from sort of foreign money, wealthy people that believed in him. They'd invested a little bit together over the years in some different businesses. So he knew some of these people, but yeah, it was mostly family friends. His own, his own family was middle-class and his father didn't have that much money. Um, so it was mostly the, the parents of his friends. Friends, got it. And talking about him being an entrepreneur, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, which I wrote down is he started a floor tile company, which I was a little confused about and had some money from that to put into his fund. Yeah. So, yeah, he's got this entrepreneurial side. Again, he loves money and he's not ashamed of it. He wanted to become rich. And so he had some ideas in college and, and after college. And frankly, his ideas, they weren't amazing, but he had some smart friends and he believed in them. And they're the ones who kind of focused on getting the business going. So, right, floor tile company in Latin America and a couple other things. Uh, he's, a, he's a fascinating guy and he's got these different interests when you uh, – Talk to most mathematicians, quantitative type people. They're not entrepreneurs. Jim Simons is a unique uh, breed. And um, you also mentioned uh, Limroy, um, L-I-M-R-O-Y. Is that the same as Monometrics? Because I, I was trying to put those. Yeah, there were versions. They changed different names. Um, and then eventually it all morphed into Renaissance Technologies. And what's uh, interesting is that Renaissance Technologies, the reason they called it Technologies is it was just as much a um, – venture capital type firm at the time it wasn't clear even as late as like 1989 it wasn't clear that jim simons would become a trader and investor the what he is today it could have gone in a very different direction so it, it does kind of send a message there that um e even the greatest uh, of us you know it could have it could have gone a different direction um so you know there was some good good luck some good fortune involved and obviously a lot of good skill and you had mentioned Ed Thorpe, and I wonder um, with the, with the Renaissance, you know, have you learned anything about how they've reduced their risk? For example, you know, there's the Kelly criterion or Kelly formula that was sort of made famous by Ed Thorpe's book. And I wonder if you had any inclination as to if they use some of the Kelly formula or some other um, formulas to reduce their risk. They looked into the Kelly criteria, but not a, people internally and externally unless they're misleading me i don't think it was that um valuable for them um well a lot of what they did was develop these systems to figure out how much they were impacting the market with their trades and it's not the sexiest kind of work but it's really important so if you've got this great trade idea um it only works if when you put it on, it doesn't move the market too much, as you know, because then it you know hurts your profit potential. So they became really good at in early in, in that regard on figuring out the impact and, and also when to trade, when not to trade, how to trade. So they look to an outsider or to someone who has a little bit of a sense of what they're doing. They, they look like a, a high frequency type shot because they are trading all all the time, all day long, but they don't look at themselves as high frequency because their holding period is actually long, much longer than high frequency because, but they look like high frequency because they're putting on their trade so rapidly. And it's a, just a way to not impact the market is the way they look at it. So that's, they see themselves, that's like their 
uh, competitive advantage in a lot of ways. They have a lot of <laughs> things they do better than everybody else, but they emphasize the impact uh, of their trading um, on the market much, much earlier than, than most. Um, and their fund is currently closed to outside investors. Well, right? The key so one is the medallion is the one I focus on in my book, and that's been closed for a long time. It's about $10 billion, and it's the employees and a few friends and family. But they do have these outside funds. Reef is, a, is the big outside fund and a couple others that are available to institutions on the outside. They don't do quite as well. They don't aim to do quite as well. They don't. They tra- They hold um, – their holding period is longer. They don't do the same kinds of trades. But it's – um. It, it still does quite well, just not nearly as good as the uh, medallion fund. So let's say, for example, if, if somebody is uh, a very good, uh, has a good track record and, uh, you know, they want to try to emulate uh, Renaissance or Jim Simmons, is that possible or is the era of hedge funds have passed? Um, because you hear a lot of hedge funds returning their capital. Um, going into family offices, what is what is your sense since you've been in the industry for a while? Well, it's hard, uh, and the people there will tell you that the market has become more efficient. So, if you're going to start now, there are pockets of inefficiency, and, and I'm not a believer that everyone has to be quant. There are super smart, fundamental investors still doing well. Uh, but not as well as they used to. It's gotten harder. It's just more efficient. It's hard. The information flies by faster. It's more competitive. I don't hear the same kind of great ideas I used to. I used to have meetings with people and be kind of really impressed. And I don't come away as impressed as I used to. So it's harder for the fundamental investor. But, you know, in some ways they just do things so differently that they shouldn't worry too much about the guys like Jim Simons. I wouldn't be a short-term trader and try to compete with them. But if you're going to be a longer holding period uh, type investor, then you don't have to worry as much about people like Jim Simons and Renaissance. And and since you you have learned a lot about Renaissance Capital, if you had the money, would you actually put your own money with Renaissance? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, listen, I'm a skeptical, cynical jaded uh, journalists. So I keep waiting for them to drop the ball and, and mess up. But yeah, relative to others, for sure, they, they they get better talent than everybody else. It's one of their big advantages. They um, hire their, their pool of talent. is just so much greater and deeper and more impressive. In other words, other people talk about hiring PhDs. I've got X number of PhDs. They're all big on that. We're talking about in, in, the, in the quant world and in others as well. Renaissance, yeah, they've got a lot of PhDs, but these are people who ran departments, who who did groundbreaking uh, work in, in the world of academia. It's just not your average PhD. So the talent level is just so much better, and they still run things pretty well. There's a real urgency within the firm. So yeah, if the Wall Street Journal allowed me, um, and uh, I had the money, and they let me, uh, and especially I could get into medallion, yeah. I mean, even this year, 2020, through the terrible beginning part of the year, through March, they were still up. I wrote a story. I forget what it was. It was like 30 40%. It was crazy good. So they continued to somehow uh, hit these home runs. And those 40% you mentioned, that is net, net. It's not, it's not gross. It's like after fees, after taking out all the expenses, right? Yeah, so their fees are crazy high, 5% um, AUM, of AUM, management fee, and 
depending who you are, like 38% or 44% of, of all gains. It's, it's ridiculously high. But um, yeah, before the, their returns, their average returns since 1988, before fees is 66% and after fees is 39%. So not nearly as good after fees, but still, still pretty darn good. And have you, based on your research, has any other firms come close to that? Hmm. Or- uh, there's some firm TGS that is out there and secretive and very good. I don't know if they're as good. They're even more secretive than Renaissance. It's crazy. So if any of your listeners uh, want to hit me up and tell me about TGS, that would be great. Um, no, there are others that are very good. I, I haven't really come across. I mean, you have tiny people. People are always reaching out to me. Oh, Greg, I managed a million dollars and I was up 70% last year, but that's not anything like managing $10 billion and doing this since 1988. Right. And, and, and what was the most uh, surprising thing, um, having done the research and wrote this book and interviewed so many people for Renaissance Capital? Was there anything surprising? To uh, you? And it's, and by the way, it's Renaissance Technologies. A lot of people somehow, there's a, some IPO firm, I think, called Renaissance Capital, but not to be confused. Um, the most surprising thing is how long it took them to have their breakthroughs and figure it out. So I feared as a journalist that I would start this project and Here's a firm up 66% a year since 1988. Well, what's the tension? What's the obstacle you overcome as a reader? You kind of want that. And what, what you, know, you can't really learn lessons necessarily from a firm that hasn't met too many setbacks. And the surprising thing was how many setbacks they faced and how it could have gone either way. And they almost blew it a bunch of times. And there was tension and fighting and, and behind the scenes stuff. So that was one of the things that really kind of shocked me and surprised me and uh, was a relief as a writer, frankly. And the other is um, how much Jim Simons' management approach and management skills, how important they were. So in, in, in some ways, the book really is as much a uh, management book, frankly, as it is um, and as, as an investing book, in some ways, even more of a management. So how he, he hires people, how he creates incentives and puts people on the same page. It's all really impressive stuff. So I, I, I learned a lot. So, yeah. And in talking about setbacks, I recall uh, in your book, early in his career, when he first started with the funds, he wasn't doing that well, right? And then um, he hired some people and uh, created a couple of uh, algorithms, and that sort of helped a little bit. Yeah. I mean, listen, you can debate. There's debate about um, – what's most important in terms of his uh, skill set. But I, I think his ability to combine the two. So he's a great manager, as I said, but he also, as you said, he also creates algorithms. He, he can do both. He's both sides of the brain. There aren't many people like that. You know, the, the joke about mathematicians is an outgoing mathematician is someone who, um, who stares at your shoes as opposed to his or her own shoes <laughs> during a, during a conversation. Um, <laughs> So, and he, but he's not like that. He's funny. He's witty, smart. He's, um, smokes. He's a chain smoker. He drinks a lot. He's a fascinating guy. So he's not your usual quant uh, and he's not your usual, just plain fundamental manager. Yeah. You know, it's a very interesting book. So if somebody wants to reach out to you, you know, what's the best way for someone to reach out to you, find out more about you and, about your book. So your book is currently out. Sure. Amazon. Amazon, anywhere else you'd like to buy it. The man who solved the market. Uh, yeah, I'm easy to find on uh, email. It's Gregory.Zuckerman at WSJ.com 
or I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, follow me on LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. And uh, I love hearing feedback, constructive criticism. Yeah, Greg, good book, but you missed something, you know, helps my reporting in the future and love to hear stories that I should be writing uh, for the Wall Street Journal or even my next book, I guess. So uh, feel free to uh, reach out to me. So do you have a next book? I've got mind? a couple ideas. I'm not sure they work. Um, we'll see. So it's a little, a little premature. And it takes me a few years usually to settle on something. So it's got to be something that I'm willing to uh, stay up till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning most or many nights and be passionate about it. It's not, there aren't that many topics where you can really – you have to really be into it as a writer. Uh, once I tried figuring out – per hour, what it was, what I was making. And you, you really don't want to go through that exercise. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's better to, you really need to be passionate and love the topic. So I, it's not easy to find a topic that one loves and one can put so much time into. So I'm um, on the lookout, but eager to hear people's uh, ideas. 